This is Fire Rescue One Side Alpha Podcast, putting fire service leaders in front of hot topics facing firefighters today. Now here's the executive editor of FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com, Chief Mark Bashore. This week marks the 20th anniversary of September 11th, the day we lost 343 FDNY firefighters in the line of duty at the hands of terrorists. It was an industry-shaking day for the fire service and really a world-altering day for all of us. The FDNY suddenly found itself without hundreds of members at a time when there was so much uncertainty in the world. Today, we're speaking with a man who has long been credited with redesigning the department in the aftermath of 9-11. Before we dive into that, let's hear a brief word from our sponsor. At MSA, your health and safety drive us to develop highly advanced safety equipment to protect you on the job. MSA's Globe Gear is performance and protection in perfect balance. It's designed to meet the challenges you face every day to help keep you safe and healthy during your career and beyond. Get the full story at msafire.com globe. That's msafire.com globe. Today, we're speaking with former FDNY Chief of Department and Commissioner Sal Cassano. Commissioner Cassano's career with the FDNY spans 45 years. He started in 1969 and ultimately held every rank in the department. Cassano became FDNY's Chief of Operations shortly after 9-11 and was later appointed Chief of Department in 2006, the highest ranking uniform officer in the department. In 2010, he was appointed fire commissioner of FDNY and later retired from the department in 2014. Commissioner, thanks for joining us today in the podcast to talk about that dark day for FDNY and in American history and about uh, what had to happen to ultimately re-envision the department. Thank you, Mark, for having me on as we uh, come up on the 20th anniversary of the uh, attacks on the World Trade Center. I appreciate being able to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, it's uh, it's a rough uh, time. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, hopefully some insight uh, for our listeners that uh, that, that uh, will make folks stop and just think a little bit more. Let's start with some background. Um, you had been on the department for approximately 30 years at the time of 9-11. Uh, where were you the day and what was your role at the time? So I've got a few questions here. Uh, where were you uh, that day? And what was your role at the time, not only in 9-11, but in the immediate days uh, after? I was working in headquarters um, on a special project and was in the command center when um, the attacks occurred. So my role was at, at that time was a citywide tour commander and was overseeing Manhattan. But I was offline for a little bit doing the special project on radios. And was listening to the radio, the you know our, our um, department radio when we heard that there was an explosion at the World Trade Center, and um, I was figuring there was some sort of work accident. And then the next transmission was that there was a plane that crashed into the World Trade Center, and with that, along with the rest of the chiefs that I was working with at the time, uh, we responded down to the World Trade Center. Hmm. So, you know, September 11th is definitely one of those sentinel moments or days for most people. 
things that will probably be forever etched in your memory. I was remember driving to our Mercy Operations Center right outside Washington, D.C., and watching the uh, smoke billowing from the Pentagon that was less than 20 miles to our west. And for me, that's the moment that um, is personally burned in, in, my, uh, in, in my brain, if you will. What do you remember most from that day, and, and can you talk about that? Sure. Um, responding there, I was um, looking at the smoke billowing from the North Tower. In fact, before I left, I actually looked out one of our office windows and saw the smoke that was billowing from the North Tower. And, and at that moment, I realized that this was not a small plane that had hit the building. It was couldn't possibly have been an accident because it was such a beautiful, clear day. The sky was blue. You could see for miles on end. There was no way that somebody could be misdirected into hitting that building. So yeah. that was my thought responding. And, and then just when I was pulling up to um, the away a couple of blocks from North Tower, but just to see how close I could get. And I was getting out of my car and then it was another loud explosion. And in my mind, I thought it was the secondary explosion and we were under attack. Uh, it was actually the South Tower being hit, but I couldn't see that from my view. Mm. And um, the thing that's etched in my mind that I will never forget is when people were going into those buildings, you know, our members were going into those buildings and the look of determination on their faces as we gave them orders, you know, who was going into the North Tower, who was responding into the South Tower, who was at our um, staging area. Nobody flinched. There was nobody that flinched every time we gave an order to go someplace. It was just like they were going to work on a normal day at a normal fire, which we know it wasn't, and they know it wasn't. And something I just will never forget is that people that I gave orders to to help out to evacuate the Marriott. There was a, we, I was in the Marriott for a bit, and we were trying to evacuate the Marriott Hotel. And they just went about their business. And that's something I can never, ever forget. And the only response I got was, yes, Chief, even though – Hey, it's a dangerous operation. Be careful. Take it easy. Even speaking to our most experienced officers that I dealt with, they just looked at me like, okay, so we're on our way. And I will never yeah. forget the determination on their face that we knew thousands of people were trapped and they would do their darns to get them out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at, uh, you know, you never expect a crew to, uh, to challenge those orders, but, you know, we all know that it, from time to time that happens, but I imagine that day uh, there was no challenge. Mark, you were... there was none whatsoever. None, and, and, yeah. and I can tell you that debris was flying off the building. Uh, unfortunately, people were jumping off the building and yeah. it, nobody flinched. Nobody. Yeah. I, I remember uh, listening and, um, you know, I know what those sounds were. And I think in time people knew what those sounds were, yeah. but the people jumping out of desperation uh, choosing which death was going to be less painful and there was nothing you could do about it. That must've been, um, you know, a difficult time. It, it was, it was, but as I said, it didn't deter any of us and it didn't deter yeah. the members we were sending up to do their job. Yeah. You know, losing so many of, uh, your brothers in the line of duty, uh, had to be excruciating. Uh, but on top of that, 
you were appointed chief of operations, um, a role that put you squarely at the helm of rebuilding the department. This was after 9-11. What was that shift like for you? I mean, clearly you were in a, a, a mode of um, recovery within the department. You were still probably burying people, uh, but you were appointed to um, to make that shift happen. What was that like for you, and, and how did you begin formulating a plan? Well, you know, Mark, we were um... – Unfortunately, we hadn't recovered a lot of our members, so we were we were burying people until the following year. And yeah. uh, we had memorial services first, and then we ended up recovering somebody. We had a funeral for them. So we, we were doing this almost every day. But we also had to run the department as well. And uh, it was a matter of putting together a good team because we had lost our chief of department, Pete Gancy, who was, you know, our real leader and we lost two of our top staff chiefs, Donald Burns, who was our chief of operations for, for a while there, and probably was the most knowledgeable person in the department as far as the inner workings of the job. And we lost Chief Jerry Barber, who was my closest friend on the job. Uh, he was our chief of fire prevention. And then Ray Downey, who everybody knows. Ray was our special operations chief. All the people that we, that we would depend on to help us yeah. rebuild our department, we lost. So yeah. the first step was to put together a good team to help us to rebuild. And, and we were fortunate enough that uh, a lot of people didn't retire. They stayed on. Uh, the people that we asked to step up to help us, even though everybody, you know, we were all in an accelerated time frame of where we thought we would be in a few years. Unfortunately, it hit immediately. Uh, so we had to build the team together quickly, which was the first important step we had to do. And then we had to start to recruit more members, and we didn't know how that was going to go. We thought that uh, people might not step up to take the job after they saw how dangerous it was. I mean, it was on TV. I mean, you could you could witness how dangerous our job was at the World Trade Center when you lose 343 members of the department in 102 minutes. That's all it took for those two buildings to get hit and collapse. Mm. We weren't sure would people want this job. And yeah. when we put out a, a call for uh, – our next test, this is the thing where we knew that we would be okay. We had a record number of people apply to the job, record mm. number that wanted to come on and help us to rebuild and serve the city. And once we got that list of how many people, was, I think it was 60,000 people that signed up that wanted to become firefighters in that next test, we knew we'd be okay. We knew it was going to be hard. We knew it was going to be a long road. We knew that it was going to take a lot of training and a lot of help by people in other pump to stay on and not leave we knew we'd get it done because of those people that said they wanted to be new york city firefighters and those same people that stepped up 20 years ago a number of them are running our job now they're, they're yeah. top chiefs now that you know how things come around uh they're there now helping to re, you know keep the department going you, as you know you're never finished you know you can't right. say wow We've rebuilt. We're done. We're good. As, as, evidence, as evidence by your next tragedy, you're never done rebuilding your department. You're never done redesigning, retooling for our next challenge. So it was, it was a couple of things, putting together a good team, getting people to sign up for the job that we knew wanted it, and then training them. And that was one of the biggest ways we did it. We increased our training for every rank uh, from our top chiefs down to our new probies. Everybody got increased training 
because of the challenge we knew we were going to face. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, that whole recruitment effort had to be phenomenal. And I it, it's interesting to see um, the comparison of what happened then to what's happening to our brothers on law enforcement right now, yeah, which is a political environment and the difficulty of recruitment. I could certainly see some parallels there, but uh, it doesn't sound like that that uh, really negatively affected you. But you know, to get sixty thousand people to apply, that must have been a, a Herculean effort for a recruitment team and you know your chiefs. Was there um, challenges there that you weren't able to overcome, and, and things maybe fell by the wayside, or did it just uh, kind of smooth together? No, that whole the whole recruitment and, and hiring effort there. No, it was it, it gets done by it gets done by our department and it gets done by our city's personnel department. So the joint yeah. effort of you know it takes a lot of people. It took a lot of people to you know you know you got to get through the app. Yeah, you got to hold the test, and then you got to hold the physical. It, it it took a lot, but we got it done because of not only the efforts on our department, but the city has a department of personnel that helped us out a lot as well. And it was yeah. important because we knew we were going to need a lot of people, not only because of the people that we lost, but because of the people that were hurt, the people that got sick, and then some people that were just going to retire. So we knew we had to get it done, and, and they, they got it done pretty quickly so that we started hiring for that class uh, months down the road. Yeah. Um, do you know how many I, – I had seen that – in the years, uh, recent years that followed, that uh, more than 6,800 people were hired. Uh, was that on par with uh, what would normally have been hired, minus, of course, the fatalities? But uh, or did the department oh, no. exponentially increase its staffing after 9/11? Well, not that we increased our staffing, but the, we you know we had a we constantly had retirements, and and, sure. and and when you retire in every rank, you know, so as a chief retires. That means you got to promote a, a captain to a chief, a lieutenant to a captain. So it yeah. constantly turns over all the ranks. I mean, yeah. the, the, the numbers, the numbers that we had were just like unbelievable as far as uh, up in you know the first few years. It was just amazing how many we had a high. We were, we had double classes of 300 at a time. In, wow. in the, you know, so we had to have we had split shifts so that we could hire because we had to keep promoting as well. I mean, we went through yeah. an amazing number of promotions and and um, retirements. Yeah. And it, it was all, it was an awful lot, and it was amazing how it worked out and the, and the numbers that we had. Like in in ten years, we went through hundreds. I mean, hundreds, thousands of offices who retired and who we had to promote, and uh, every one of those people that got promoted got extensive training as well there was no like we need to promote you like when i got promoted i was thrown in the field two days later that was my training yeah. two days and that wasn't going to happen with us because it just could not happen there was so much more to learn in the job than when i first came on and so yeah, sure. many, it was so much more complications so everybody that got promoted no matter how many we had to promote they still got all the training they needed good and yeah, that was part of the rebuilding effort. Was making sure everybody got trained uh, properly and not just thrown out in the field. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I've been to the Rock uh, after uh, after 9/11. So uh, if there was ever a training 
division or place that could handle it, that's the place. So it's a phenomenal opportunity to. Uh, I how long you've been? How long you have been there? We we've added so many new facilities. Like you know, we have the high rise simulator, and and now mm-hmm. we have we have a subway simulator where we, we simulate a train station with you know tough fights yeah. to fight. And now we have they now I haven't seen it yet. I'll be out there soon. They have an airplane that they have how to fight aircraft fires. So that's yeah. that's maybe the last piece of the puzzle. I don't know much more we could add out there. Yeah. Well, there's always more room somewhere, but uh, yeah, there is. Uh, yeah. We also have it's a shipboard a, firefighting simulator out there as well. It's a phenomenal piece of property, and I encourage anybody that can uh, that can go uh, to go take a look. Uh, we welcome there. You, Yeah, and we appreciate that. You know, you mentioned that um, you never done rebuilding. And um, I'm curious, though, as you went through the process, you know, you you were chief of operations and you were chief of department and then ultimately commissioner. Did you get to a point where you felt like, okay, we're we've got enough staffing and we have enough equipment or uh, and and it's not a political statement. So I don't want anybody to confuse it with that. Or has it never been enough? Mark, I. After what we went through on September 11th, in in my mind, as much equipment as we had, we always I always felt there was more we could do. I always felt like was there a better apparatus out there? Was there a better mask? Was there a better bunker gear? Was there a better radio? Um, were we missing something in the way we trained? I, I know you know you know we set up a a Center for Terrorism and Disaster Preparedness uh, that Joe Pfeiffer ran for ran for us for many years. And yeah. were we doing training out there correctly? Uh, I never felt like we were done. Even though I knew we had come a long way and we had done so much, I always thought maybe there was something better we needed to do. And I think I, I would stress this to every department or every person that's listening. See what's out there. That maybe is better than what you have, Mark. You've been in, you've been in the job a long time. I've been in the job a long time, even though I'm out. And you know the old saying: never let tradition get in the way of progress. And mm-hmm. uh, we or never let progress get in the way of tradition. And that can't be. There's so much new equipment out there, and so much new stuff that would make uh, any job better. Keep looking for that in your department. Keep looking for it. Keep searching for it. Keep training more. So no, I never felt like we were done. Yeah, yeah. Joe Pfeiffer was there when I toured uh, at the academy, and um, oh. just a, ph- a phenomenal guy. And the opportunity to, you know, to, to pick that brain of, like you just said, there's always something better. Uh, we're we're going to find it, and and I appreciate that uh, mentality out of you and him. Yes. Let's switch gears. Let's switch gears for just a second. Um, you know, FDNY, uh, by the time you had left, I believe, uh, FDNY had ultimately reduced the number of annual civilian fire fatalities to the lowest number in the history of the existence of FDNY. Can you talk about how that shift occurred and, and the key components that led to the reduced, uh, you know, to the reduction of uh, fatalities? Sure, Mark. Um, when, when I came on the job in 1969, the, the fire deaths were running around 300 a year. And in 1970, the, the the first full year that I was on the job, the 
we had lost the most civilians we'd ever lost with 310 civilians in flyers. Each year, we they, I know they were striving with different programs, but in the late 90s, we started to kick in with the training, you know, the training actually of our members to get out there as public safety agents and talk about public safety, talk about smoke detectors. And our fire safety education unit that we developed holds thousands of events each year to educate the public on you know, what to do in case you have a fire. How do you prevent the fire? Do you have a smoke detector in your house? It was a constant battle. For years, we were getting so many fires, so many fatal fires started by candles. As you know, candles were the in thing. And we had to go out and just stress that candles are so dangerous. Unattended candles caused more fires so many times for us that it was heartbreaking to go in and see a young child killed because of a candle fire. So yeah. it was always, it was an educational process. It was a process of educating people on the importance of smoke detectors, having fire safety habits. We we give out we have dozens of languages that we give out material on on what to do. There's there's 150 something languages spoken in New York City. We don't have them all, but we have enough that when we get out to the neighborhoods where there's a fatal fire, and we we flood the neighborhood with members of our fire safety education team that give out material. And it, it does work. We, you know, we're constantly giving out free smoke detectors thanks to the city and our FDNY foundation that provide the funds for it. And it's such an important, I don't have to tell you how important it is to have a smoke detector in a home. Sure. We, for years we were going on 65% of our fire deaths, there was no smoke detector in the home. And that's just yeah. a shame that it has to happen. So it's through education, through giving out smoke detectors, and through constantly reminding the public of what to do to prevent the fire and what to do if they have a fire. And that's constantly ongoing as we speak today. Yeah, no, that's great. And it's a mirror of uh, a lot of departments across the country. I'm curious, do the FDNY firefighters, as you give those smoke alarms out, uh, do they install them or, or do they just give them to the residents? We would, No, we would give them out. But now they have a program where the um, our members are, are helping installing them with the Red Cross in some areas, which is good, good which, yeah. we, which we try yeah. to do. They're doing that now. And, I, and yeah. I, I, I urge all departments, if you can start a program where your members can help install them, it's the thing to do because if people see a firefighter in their home, they feel much safer as well. So that's not the first time they're seeing a firefighter. Yeah, absolutely. We'll continue our talk with former FDNY Chief and Commissioner Sal Cassano in just a moment. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsor. At MSA, your health and safety drive us to develop advanced safety equipment with performance and protection in perfect balance. Like the Globe Guard Hood, which offers head and neck particulate protection with exceptional comfort and fit, reduced bulk under your helmet, and uninterrupted hearing for critical situational awareness. It's designed for the health and safety of what's underneath. That's you. Learn more about our hood's features and particulate blocking efficiency at msafire.com slash globe. That's msafire.com slash globe. Commissioner, can you talk about your support system uh, during that time? I, I've read a lot about the FDNY Foundation, the union, and the uh, National Fallen Firefighters Foundation, but I'm interested in your assessment of the overall support systems and if you could speak to that. 
sure, Mark. We we had so much support. Um, you did mention the NFFF, and I, and I just have to talk a little bit about that because my good friend Ron Sonicky, when we um, we met in October of 2001, and um, he brought his crew up for uh, you know from the D.C. area, and, and then we met with our counseling unit, and we knew that we were going to have a multitude of counseling issues, and you know we had a very small counseling unit at the time. It was I think we had seven people, and um, they just said whatever support you need. You know, we'll we'll, we'll give you, because you're going to need it. And um, we didn't know what we were going to need, but we knew that we were going to need a lot of support. And they helped us develop our counseling unit. You know, at our height, when we were giving counseling to so many of our people, we had over 200 counselors, beside peer counselors, going out into the field, our own members that had retired that were willing to come back and help us with our counseling. So the NFF really set us up um, on that path. And and we actually said at the table that day... um, Someday we're going to write a book on it. And our counseling unit years later wrote a book that's actually used in crisis management courses in colleges uh, because of what we learned from the department in such a tragic incident. And now, as you know, we go all over the country, our counseling unit, to supply, supply support for any, any department that needs it. We were just in Florida, the counseling unit, helping out down in that uh, South Florida collapse. So certainly yeah. NFF is right up there with our support. Our FDNY Foundation has been tremendous in supplying funds for us, uh, things that we can't get through the city. Uh, and all, you know, there's so many other organizations that help. And I, and I have to really talk about the support that we got as a department from all over the country and all over the world. On those early dark days when we were all working 18 hours a day, and then I'd go back to headquarters and the next day there would be letters and teddy bears and whatever it was that somebody sent us that we could send out to the field to say, hey, we're not in this alone. We have the support of so many people that are willing to supply supply us with whatever we need as well. I'm I'm not talking about material goods as much as emotional support. Um, It was just uplifting for us that people from all over the country and all over the world were going to come and help us. And I and I can tell you, as a we would have never gotten through that terrible event without the support we got from so many different departments uh, all over the country and all over the world. It was just an amazing amount of support. Yeah, it's uh, interesting you mentioned um, Chief Sarnicky. Of course, uh, he was chief of the department before he uh, chief of Prince George County before mm-hmm. he went on to the foundation, and and then I would be chief of the department uh, some years later, which is 2010. But at the time um, that this happened, Chief Sarnicky, you know, reached back just like he came up there. He reached back after he met with you all and uh, asked Prince George's County to help out however we can, however we could. And one of the uh, things that we did was uh, sent uh, Billy Hinton. You might know Billy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we sent Billy Hinton up with my unma- unmarked Crown Vic that I was driving at the time. And uh, Vinnie Brennan ended up meeting with uh, Billy. And um, I'm told that my Crown Vic was seen driving along the sidewalks of New York City uh, quite a bit. And uh, that, uh, that, you know, you talk about things that you'll remember, uh, I'll I'll forever carry that one with me as uh, a little bit of a contribution. Knowing Vinnie Brennan, that doesn't surprise me. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I no, was... It, uh, Mark, it's things like that. It's just what you said. Um, how that really helped us because we knew we weren't in this alone. We were beat. They, you know, the people on that pile were working. They were working their normal shifts and we had to chase them out of to go home because yeah. they just didn't want to leave. They just, we had to force them to go home because they just wanted to make sure, even when we knew that there was no more rescue involved, they just wanted to make sure we recovered as many people as we could, not only of our, our own members, because we're still, we're still missing over 117 members we haven't identified yet. So 116, 117. It was the members. even today, even today, up till today. Yes, yeah. you know, so I thought people don't realize that there's about a thousand people that haven't been ID'd yet, and they wanted to make sure that everybody had a fair chance for their families to have a decent burial and however way they wanted to do it. So we had to chase sure. them out of there. They didn't want to go home. So when yeah. we, when people like your, your folks came up. Or people from the, the the you know California, Mexico, every place, any place that want to send people, it just gave us hope that we weren't in this alone, that we had yeah. a lot of support. And I can't tell people how much that meant to us. Yeah, I think there's some external thought that uh, you know FDNY can handle anything, um, but uh, I think FDNY was was very clear, and I, you were. Uh, likely part of that message that uh, nobody could handle this by themselves. Mm-mm, we uh, couldn't. Uh, no, we yeah, couldn't. We, we, were a, uh, we were all one department then, and uh, that's one of the things I'll always remember as well. Yeah. So, I, you know, I know um, we, we talked a little bit about support programs, but let's talk a little bit about the, the mental health. Um, it, you know, every firefighter deals with uh, – firefighter fatalities differently. It weighs on our psyche, uh, different for everybody. The sheer depth of 343 of them at once. And then of course the continuing death toll uh, from World Trade Center related diseases must have been an unbearable weight for you and your folks. How did the FDNY accommodate that mental health, uh, uh, I guess, continuum, the struggles for members following 9-11? Yeah, and, and and Mark, that that hasn't ended yet. That's still that's still going on now. Yeah, uh, you yeah. mentioned we we've lost over 250 additional members to World Trade Center related illnesses. And the last number that they told me was I believe 255, in fact. But it almost seems like another uh, event occurs another in a day, and the number just keeps going up and up. So it's not going away. And we, as I said, when we met with Ron and his folks, we knew that it was going to be something that was we were going to have to deal with for many, many years. And uh, we provide counseling to all of our members. We provided a, a ton of counseling to all our members um, right after the event, for sure. And, in fact, some people that didn't want to come to counseling, we just went to the firehouses. We just sent peer counselors to the firehouses that they would sit down and just talk. And, and, we, and that's when a lot of people started to open up. They wouldn't talk to a regular counselor that was from the outside, but they were talking more to people that were firefighters, people that had gone through the same incidents, not to that scale naturally, but even when you lose one firefighter at a fire, it's something you never forget. So the 343 members that we lost um, was so devastating. Every firehouse had to get counseling, and we just had to up our counseling unit, I told you, to about 200 members, and then we got tons of people that volunteered to be peer counselors as well, 
which is extremely important because it seems like they were the ones that worked out the best when they went to the firehouses. And they're still doing it. They're still volunteering for us. It's a constant, constant program because we met with a, a company late in 2001. We thought we could bring on, but it was pretty much too late for counseling. But they says, you don't know when it's going to hit you. It can hit you in a week, a month, a year, or it can hit you 20 years later. But it's going to hit you. So be yeah. prepared. That's why we have a counseling unit that's constantly in motion as far as being able to uh, be there for a firefighter or a member of our EMS command. You know, went through this pandemic recently and the trauma that the members of our EMS command suffered was tremendous, I'm sure. And, and there was plenty of counseling that was offered to them as well. Besides the counseling for our members, Mark, we had a sibling group where there was counseling for the sibling of the people that we lost, uh, a mother and father, a mom and dad group, um, so many different groups that were working with our counseling unit because people wouldn't even bring it home, and they wouldn't even know if they brought it home. So if a sibling was there to understand what was going on, they would be able to help. So we had so many different programs, which we still have to this day. Yeah. Yeah, and I, uh, you mentioned the... Um... On, on the same vein, you mentioned uh, Surfside, the, the Miami collapse that just occurred, and I listened to the first in officer's transmissions, and he, he did a great job. Um, but one of the things that he commented in his, uh, what was his continuing 360, his attempt at a 360 assessment was that, um, you know, three quarters of the building was gone. It looks like it may as well be another trade center. And I know that weighs heavily on them because they know those people were inside, but it it can't compare to the 343 firefighters that you knew um, had, you know, you, you didn't know how many at the time, but had lost their lives when those buildings collapsed. Yeah. I mean, that, uh, yeah. yeah, so the services that you provide are phenomenal. And I, you know, on behalf of all of the firefighters, uh, I want to thank you and everybody that uh, has been helping uh, not only FDNY, but the families and in the community make it through uh, the recovery that's still going on 20 years later. Uh, yeah, frankly, it probably on, still. Unfortunately. Yeah. And so as you moved up through the ranks, um, you know, ultimately getting to commissioner. So how how did 9/11 uh, change your focus when you became chief of department? And you know, and 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 I'll I'll couch that question with. A lot of people that say, you know, one day, uh, if I were chief, I would do this, I would do that. And uh, I'm not saying that you would have said, if I were chief, I would do this, this or this. And now here you are. But 9-11 had to affect your focus as you became chief. And then as you became commissioner, how did that really shape uh, your decision making, uh, knowing that that was behind you? It Well, certainly uh, after September 11th, you know, I... I um... There's no doubt that I, I just dedicated the rest of my career to the department. You know, like, um, fortunately, uh, you family suffers a little bit because you're, you're not there as much as they would like you to be. But they certainly understood that my focus was to rebuild this department. And my focus was to make sure that something like this never happened again. So I was concentrating mainly on our safety issues. Whatever, mm -hmm. when I was chief of operations or the chief of department, and then when I became the commissioner, the first statement I made was, is, I'm going to ensure the safety of our members, 
and the safety of the civilians that we protect. And that's your first and foremost job. And I never forgot it. Like when we were talking before about when did you feel like you were satisfied with the rebuilding? Yeah. Because of because of that mindset of I want to make sure that our members are, are safe and the civilians that we protect are safe. There's always something out there that's better. There's always something out there that's going to make the job be more protective of your members. And so as I went up, naturally I had a little more responsibility, but it also gave me a little more say in what I wanted to get done. And then yeah. that's when I became the commissioner. It was it was an asset for me as the commissioner to have gone through all the ranks because when I dealt with the members of City Hall, and I have to say I had a great working relationship with Mayor Bloomberg. I was with him for 12 years. He knew who I was, and he knew that if I said something, it wasn't because I was looking for pie in the sky. He knew I said sure. it because I was looking to make sure that we do things as safely as possible. And when he asked me, can we do this, I would I would either say yes or I would say no, it's not safe. And he wouldn't yeah. really ever question that. So as I went up, it just made me focus even, had more say in the safety of our members and the safety of the civilians we protect. And that's what my main focus was. Mm. And that's a, a fantastic focus. There's really nothing more to say uh, there. When, when you reflect on 9-11, and you might have just said it, but when, when you reflect on 9-11, is there one thing that stands out to you personally and professionally, something that other chiefs and officers could learn and grow from? Well, I, as I can say that you, as good as you think you may be, you can always be better. I mean, we had trained at the World Trade Center. I was in, I was in charge of that area for a few years. And we had drills at the World Trade Center all the time. And we said, if this happens, this is what we're going to do. And if this happens, we're going to be here. We're going to be here. But Nobody ever prepared for two, two jetliners into the two towers. And in 102 minutes from the first time the first building was hit to the second building collapsed, it was 102 minutes. And mm. it's, Mark, it's less than a movie that you go see. And think of all yeah. the thousands of decisions that were made in that short period of time. And yeah. and, and that's what I constantly think of is, it was so. It seemed like it was so long that we were there, but it was only 102 minutes from the time the first plane hit till the second tower collapsed. And all the things that happened in that short period of time, it, it's still to my to this day as I think about it. And believe me, I think about September 11th every day because either I'm going to get I get a call from a family member, or I get a call from a friend, or as I walk down my stairs into my basement. Is the plaque of all 343 members who lost. It's there to hit me. And I don't mind that because I want to make sure that we do not ever get complacent to think that we are there. We're never there. We're always going to do try to do something better. So I just, as I reflect on that day and the short period of time that everything took place, we have to make sure that we're prepared for anything that we face. And if would, it, would, it may be something different, like Hurricane Sandy was totally different. But we were pretty much prepared for that because of all the training that we had taken because of September 11th. And, and I'm not blowing anybody's horn, but as a department, we did a great job during Hurricane Sandy because of all the training that we put all our members through. Not just our Special mm -hmm. Operations Command, but our regular line units, people on Staten Island. That, you know, Staten Island, uh, I live on Staten Island, so Borough is pretty quiet firewise. 
they performed so admirably making so many water rescues during Hurricane Sandy because of all the training that we provided. So, yeah, it made me, as I reflect back on September 11th, I think of that day of 102 minutes, but all the training that we did after that and that we are trying to be prepared for anything that we face. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you mentioned um, never forget. And um, before we close here, I, sure, I want to make sure we talk about uh, stair climbs and memorials. And, you know, the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation, of course, has uh, expanded the, the stair climb event um, across the country, really across the world. And every year, um, I, I climb with Chief Gancy's tag. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I have it in my closet. And um, I, I climb for him every year. And I tell the story, um, his story, when I do the presentations at the, at the opening ceremonies of these climbs that, uh, that we have here, even in Central Florida. And, um, you know, thinking about uh, those and thinking about the memorials that have spread around the world, um, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about those memorials. And, you know, I'll tell you what, what we're going through here. We um, are in the final stages of um, erecting our memorial here in Highlands County so that Highlands County, Florida, so that on September 11th this year, uh, we will formally dedicate our 9-11 memorial with a piece of the steel. And um, you know, would, would have been would have liked to have had it done before this, but we're honored to be able to dedicate it and finish it in time for the 20th anniversary. Can you talk about those memorials and, and how that's uh, spread and what that means for you? Sure, Mark. Um, after September 11th, <clears throat> and, you know, we knew how important the World Trade Center steel was going to be. And I know, you know, a good friend of mine, Lee Ayelpin, and Lee was a big part of the mindset that we felt that as much World Trade Center steel that we could get out to the rest of the country and the world to show you the resilience of not only our department, but the city and how we rebuilt it uh, would be important to be incorporated to any memorial that there was going to be put up. And we sent steel all over the world to ensure that what happened on September 11, 2001 was never forgotten. And it's easy to forget if you weren't here or you didn't have a loved one or a friend that was lost some, to some people would be just another day. We just never wanted that to happen. And we wanted to make sure that any memorial that went up would be done as would a piece of World Trade Center steel because of what this signified to us. You know, you talk about the NFFF and their stair climbs. I, I'm on the executive board of a, a Staten Island organization, uh, the Tunnels of Towers Foundation, uh, yeah. Stephen Silva. And, you know, we, we're doing so many good things. I'm not here to put a plug in for them, but just to, to say that's another organization that wants to make sure that people never, ever forget what happened that day. So as these memorials go up and you walk, somebody's going to walk by your fire station or someday you're going to get a new firefighter in there and he's going to look at that memorial and then he's going to see the World Trade Center still. He might not even have been born then, but he's going to realize, mm -hmm. oh, September 11th, this is what it meant. And this is how important it is. And that's going to go on not only in your city, but in every city in this country that has a memorial. So that when these new firefighters go in and they look at that, it's going to be a reminder to them that 
the sacrifices that were made and the changes that were made to the fire service because of September 11th that keep them safer is important. And, and that's what those memorials are going to mean for many, many years to come. That's why anybody that wants to put up a memorial and get some World Trade Center seals to do it, please do it because it's, it's in memory of those members that we lost on that day. Do you know how many memorials are out there? I don't know. Um... There's, there's thousands, Mark. They're all, it was funny. Yeah. We, we had a book of them, but there were so many up there. And they keep going up. You know, somebody just called for a piece of World Trade Center steel for um, a memorial in Las Vegas, which they're going to dedicate sometime in hmm, October or November. And yeah. um, I, I loved it because it's another place where thousands and thousands of people go and they'll, they'll see that memorial yeah. there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, uh, it's a great way to uh, trying to keep everybody to, to remember, a great way to kind of close us out. And you you did mention that um, the, the new firefighters at the stations, like with the station where we're building this memorial uh, that weren't even born then, we are now in that phase where firefighters were just bringing on the job were not born on 9-11. So, um, you know, that is uh, pretty poignant for them to be able to uh, to just look out of the firehouse and, uh, and and get that reminder. Commissioner, is there anything else you want to uh, cover with us? No, Mark, just to, you know, thank you and, and Fire Rescue for uh, allowing me to speak about something that's near and dear to my heart. And um, to just, for the people out there, just to... Um, you know, as we approach this anniversary, just to remember all the sacrifices that were made that day, not only for the members, you know, first responders, people don't realize how many civilians in those buildings stayed with coworkers that were incapacitated and and stayed with them because they didn't want to leave them alone. So there's a lot of civilian heroes in there that we don't even know their names. So just remember yeah. everybody on that terrible day and their families and the sacrifices that were made. That's one way we can honor them as we commemorate this 20th anniversary of September 11th. Take a moment of silence and uh, and remember. Yep. Chief, uh, I appreciate it. I want to thank Commissioner Sal Cassano for speaking with us today. I encourage our listeners to visit FireRescue1.com for more of our extensive 20-year coverage of 9-11. That's all we have time for today. This is Mark Bache, your executive editor for FireRescue1.com. Have a great day on purpose. Keep safe, stay smart, and take care.